0: Amen. <laughs> My title of this sermon, I think we're going through some service series about the Christmas season, and mine is about Mary. So, if you have a Bible, let's talk about Mary, if we could, and Luke chapter one, verse five, and let's talk start with that scripture. Let's have a, a long read about this story. But it is Christmas time, and what what better time to read about the story of what's happening than than now, and uh, and. The coming of Jesus is a a great moment, and coming back to Jesus will be a great moment, but this is the beginning of that whole process here. That's not quite theologically true. It began from the beginning of time, but you know what I mean here at this text. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, let's read that together. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing in the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years, wanting to say a little bit more gently at that point. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. And I would have been frozen at that moment, I think. <laughs> I, I stand in the presence of God And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angels went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said, un- said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Well, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready hurried to the town in the hill country of Judea and where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings and the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and in a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. And just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. And they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he used to be called John. And they said, well, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name his child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe throughout the hill country of Judea. People were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard this wondered about him, asking what then is this child going to be? The Lord's hand was with him. And then next, Zechariah will break into song. It's like a spiritual musical. <laughs> when you're going along and you just kind of break into song, you know. And that's kind of a cool thing, is not it not? Now here in this text, it's is an exciting text. It's a text that most of us have heard many, many times. And I'm here to try to make this fresh <laughs> and exciting. But just reading the story gives goosebumps, doesn't it? When you hear some of those phrases in there, nothing is impossible with God. She believed his word. You know, Gabriel has appeared to both Zachariah and Mary you know, and you see, in some sense, the subtlety of faith. Because one can tell by the reaction of Gabriel that you know Gabriel is irritated with Zachariah, but very gentle with Mary and comforting. And it's not that angels are tougher on men and softer on women. <laughs> That's not the point of that text. It's actually their response that causes the reaction of Gabriel. How do we respond to God's word, male or female? That doesn't matter. But how do we respond? That really matters. Zechariah, it says it's his time to serve in the temple. <coughs> the descendants of Aaron ad, ad, uh, were, were a vast number, in almost a whole tribe, and so you would, have a, you, would, you would have only a moment to serve. You know, there would be a division of time, and only, a, only several times in your life would you be able to serve at this function. It was his time, a very special moment. You go onto the altar of the temple, and there are two main altars. Uh, one is the altar where all the sacrifices were made on that altar, where the burnt offerings were, 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 were offered. But next to that offer over here was called the altar of incense. And, and maybe I have a slide of that. I, I do there, you know. And, and, um, and so, so he's, the text says that he's not next to the burnt offering. He's next to the altar of incense at this moment. The angel stands next to him there. And he is near that, and the angel appears next to that altar. In the book of Revelation, for instance, where they often talk about, you know, whatever is on earth is mirrored in heaven. That's what Hebrews talks about that. But, but the altar for burnt offerings is never mentioned in Revelation because after the coming of Jesus, there is no need for an altar for burnt offerings. That Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. But in Revelation, there is this, this altar of incense that lifts up. And in Revelation, it actually explains there in Revelation 8, 3, and 4 that it stands for the prayers of the saints. The incense, the smoke, as it lifts up, is symbolic of our prayers that we pray that go up to heaven. And so Zechariah is standing next to this altar of incense and, Zach, and the angel says to him what? We have heard your prayers. We have heard your prayers. In other words, you know, he's been, they, I'm sure... They've been praying for a child after all those years, and now his prayer is being answered. But what is his response? A bit like a lot of our response when our prayers are answered. <laughs> worship, that we sure we believe God listens to our prayers, but we're shocked when He answers them. You know what I mean? He's he's like, well, you know what's you know uh, uh, you know he said how will I know this? Give me a sign. Well, well, isn't there one right before you now? <laughs> All right, anytime somebody shows up and he's Gabriel, that's a sign. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd say, listen to him, okay? This is a big deal, you know? And, uh, and, and so Mary, in contrast, her question is different. You know, how will this be since I am a virgin? Well, that's the contrast of those two, their two responses. Zechariah says, you know, show me a sign. Mary says, well, I I believe it's going to happen, but I'm kind of confused about how it's going to happen. Uh, There was a a meme the other day uh, I was looking at, and young Jesus said, Mom, where do do babies come from? And Joseph pulls up a chair. Yeah, Mary, where do babies come from? (laughs) Because, you know, this is going to, this is a, you know what? Uh, how's this going to work out? You know, you know, and and so and so, Gabriel comforts her at that point. You know, one wants proof that it will happen. One humbly just wants a bit more info on the process. I believe it will happen. Now, you, how will it happen? And even the answer is still a little bit vague. You know, and but she says, "Okay, I'm on board." But Zachariah confronts Zachariah. Gabriel confronts Zechariah in verse 20. It says he's unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. You're going to go, oh my, there's, a, there's always a consequence for unbelief. There's always a consequence for that. You know, at verse, uh, Mary's, of course, is blessed as she was believed, Elizabeth says of Mary. Blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she knew the story of Zechariah pretty well. (laughs) Because I'm sure Zechariah, when he got his tongue, explained to Elizabeth everything in detail multiple times. Because Zechariah and Mary, Elizabeth would probably say, now tell me again. Now tell me again how that happened. He said, oh, you didn't believe his words. But you, Mary, believed his words. And that makes all sense. All the difference. This is an important point about faith. So many use the language of faith, but without the heart of true faith. We talk about prayer and state, we will pray for each other. But do we really believe something's going to happen? You know, pick up now in this drama, Elizabeth is pregnant. And she goes into seclusion for the first five months. That tells me when she came out of seclusion, people dropped their jaw she's an old lady, and she, no one's seen her for five months, and she comes out pregnant. It's a bit of a shock in a small community. And uh, and so, uh, and in her sixth month, in other words, a month after that, Mary visits uh, Martha. Mary visits Elizabeth right after her visit from Gabriel. In other words, Gabriel visits Mary. Mary takes off to visit her cousin. In verse 36, Gabriel has told her of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is... Uh, in, in, Uh, And uh, as uh, as as well, and he says, you know, know, this is a theme here because the text actually says, literally, nothing is impossible with God. Gabriel says, the specialness of this moment, even as Mary enters the room, you know, the baby in in Elizabeth jumps with joy, because the purpose of John the Baptist is to point the way to, to Jesus, and Jesus, the the pregnant Mary comes in, and John the Baptist starts doing his job from the womb. (laughs) <laughs> From the womb, John's, John's telling here. This Jesus has come in, he, you know, and, and so and so Elizabeth. It says, full of the Holy Spirit, says, begins to speak. But the baby has told her this. The baby has pointed the way. You know, it, it, the, the text says she responds in a loud voice. The Greek word is krage, which is to croak like a raven. And a raven is very similar to our crows here that we heard. Ah! And so, next time you hear that sound, that's how Elizabeth said, wah! I'm, I'm, this is an exciting moment. What follows is a song of Mary. As I said before, it's like a spiritual musical. You know, you watch a musical and everybody's talking, and all of a sudden somebody breaks out in song. And you kind of go, where does that happen? You know? And, uh, but here it happens all the time. In Scripture, it happens all the time. Uh, the, it, the song that Mary will sing is called the Magnificent. And, and it, you can go on Google, on Google or, or, or YouTube and put "Magnificent" in, and it's one of the oldest of all the Christian hymns, dating from the second and third century. It's about the song that Mary sings. It was put, it was put to music and sung from the second century and third century on. And of course, it's, if you, it's generally in Italian or <laughs> Greek. But it's, it's, a, it's a very moving moment. Uh, and uh, in verse 46, it's called Magnificent, from verse 46, where it says Mary glorified God. So let's look, if we could, at several points here. Oops. First point, what do we magnify? Because Mary will begin by saying, I, I, I wanna, I'm, I'm magnifying God. That's what this song is up about. You know, I'm, I'm making, and the word magnify there, this word is from the Latin, the song is from the Latin, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord, uh, it's a chemical, it's also known as the Song of Mary, in the Greek, uh, in the Greek church it was called the Ode to Theotokos, and Theotokos in Greeks mean God-bearer, the God-bearer, and just so it's theologically sound in some sense, you know, and, and so here's this, this, this song, what, what do we make large? As I said, this Greek word to magnify means to enlarge, to magnify, to boast, to grow. Uh, it's used eight times. Uh, and it's used in some sense, uh, uh, you know, always make, making something larger. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She expands her view of, of the Lord. She, she, she said, I, I, I had a view of God, but he's now bigger than I thought. And I think a lot of us have had that moment in our own spiritual lives, right? Where we had a view of God, but he's a lot bigger than I thought. And this is Mary's moment. And she contrasts herself with the, with the, with the Lord here. You know, who is she? She says, I, I'm just a lowly, humble estate. Gabriel says, you are favored. And Mary's response is, hey, why am I favored? Why, why would I be favored? Which I think is a humble response, isn't it? What is it about me? You know, you know who is she? You know, I, me favored? Really? Verse 49 says, you will be called blessed because of what the Lord has done. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves oftentimes, and I would have put bigger print if I'd have known. But... Uh, But I'll just, you you can kind of look look at that and just listen as well. But what do we tend to magnify in our lives? What are some areas? Well one thing on that thing is we tend to magnify our problems. We got a problem, we start talking about it, and we, we, we make it big. In fact, in our explanation, we purposely make them bigger. Just so people will really take it seriously, right? We, we, we gotta really embellish this problem so you understand how big it is. You know, I made a bad grade. My, my life's falling apart. No, you made a bad grade. You know, what, my, one of my granddaughters came in. I was at school and this girl didn't talk to me. It was horrible. It, it, I'm sorry about that. It's not really horrible. It's not the last time. That's his life sometimes, you know. We, we magnify our problems as if the world is falling apart. Sometimes we magnify ourselves. And we, we boast. We make ourselves bigger. The same word that's used here to magnify is used of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, 5, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad, which is making, they magnify their phylacteries and their fringes long, the same Greek word, megalino. Uh, you, know, we, you know, in other words, a, a, a phylactery was a little leather box, and you put a scripture in it, which, which was the shema, the, the Lord is one, the Lord is God. And, and you'd say, well, we got to put the scripture on our minds. So they would put it in that little leather box, and they tie it on their forehead to get the scripture next to their mind. Does that make, makes make sense? And it's a, it's not command. It's just kind of a little thing, but they would get big ones, <laughs> and you'd have fringes to remember the the commandments on the four corners. But they'd have extra long ones. You know, yeah. But Jesus says you you magnify your own selves to make you look like you're really, really spiritual and more than others, but you're not magnifying God. We magnify other things. We, we magnify the fish that got away. <laughs> isn't it always, isn't it probably bigger than what it really was? You know it was. We all do that. We also, magn, we also magnify what we, what we have, what we've done, Who we know, where we live, where we holiday, what we're we 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 do it all the time. Well, the right kind of magnification. Paul, in fact, spells it out in Philippians 1:20. Paul writes there. He says, "It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored." literally magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's who we ought to be asking ourselves, what are we really magnifying in our lives? Is it God? Or is it all these problems, our self, or our insecurities making ourselves bigger? Or is it God? Mary, Mary says, man, I, I'm magnifying God. He, he's way bigger. But Elizabeth's having a baby. I'm having a baby. God's coming. God's becoming flesh. Oh, my goodness. Who would have thought about this? Look at second point. <clears throat> mercy for those who fear him. And it's generational faith. The text says, you know, in verse 50, as she sings this song, who does he extend mercy to from generation to generation? He says, God, for those who fear him, Mary says, God shows mercy. Mercy from generation to generation. So there's my generation. I got a daughter, Michelle. That's a generation. I got grandkids. Another generation. And guess what? I want all of them to become Christians. You know, from generation to generation, as you all do in your own lives. You know, there's a lot of scriptures about about. But but how do we do that? Well, we we teach, we teach a healthy fear, a. Uh, uh, a fear of God. What does it mean to fear God? Mary understands that in this text. What does it mean to fear the, fear the Lord? There's a lot of scriptures about fearing the Lord. And oftentimes they're, they're in relation to raising kids. And so in Psalm thirty-three eighteen, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. 34, 11 Psalms. Come, oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, children, I want to teach you the fear of the Lord. When was the last time you did that to your kids? That's so politically incorrect in our day, isn't it? In the religion of our day. Come, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. You know, Psalm 103, 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Generational at that time. And it specifically mentions children for them to learn to fear the Lord. Yet it seems to be a common phenomena of us as humans to somehow not pass to our children what it means to fear the Lord. It's common in the scriptures and common from my own experience as a disciple. Uh, in, in, in Judges 2, for instance, in verse uh, 2, 7, and verses 10 and 11, I don't know whether I wrote the scripture down or not, and I did it, but but in Judges it says there that the people of God under Joshua go into the Promised Land. Joshua dies, and then it says a generation grew up who didn't know the Lord. The, the generation did not teach the next generation to fear the Lord. If you read the Book of Judges, there's not a lot of fear of the Lord in the Book, book of, of Judges. There's First Samuel chapter two, and there's Eli, and Eli has these sons, and his sons. Have no fear of the Lord, and and God sends, uh, God speaks to Eli, and he says, "Well, my boys are out of control. I don't know what to do, you know." And, and uh, he doesn't listen, and then finally he speaks through Samuel, uh, the, the young boy, and uh, and he starts hearing a voice, and finally Eli says, well, "What, what's God saying?" And he says, he says, he said, he said, "You, your sons aren't going to make it. They're doing, they're, because Eli had rebuked his son, stop sleeping with all the girls." at the gate of the tent and stop taking the food before it's given as an altar. You can sin against people, that's one thing. You're sinning against the Lord, but he, that's, but he didn't do anything to change that. And he says, he says, because you didn't constrain your sons, and in some sense teach them the fear of the Lord, they're gonna die. You're not gonna have any of your descendants reach middle age because you're not teaching them to fear the Lord. They had no fear of the Lord, but why does the next generation often fail to get what it means to fear the Lord? Because that's a big question. You know, I, I got with some of your teen leaders the other day and you know, what, what's some insights into teen ministry? You know, how do we get the next generation to really be great disciples? Well, it seems to me one lesson is a healthy fear of the Lord. And I know that fear means respect, but it also means fear. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, this, it's, it's the real deal, guys. It's life and death. It's not just, wait a minute, I'm, it's not a paranoia, it's a reality. And, and, and do our kids know that? Well, what, what, keeps us, what keeps them some time? The next generation. And not just our children, but the next generation of disciples that we make. We're making, having three new disciples in just a, in, a, in a short time will they know the right kind of fear of the lord will they pass that on well there's several things i think prevent us knowing the fear of the lord the first and is entitlement it's entitlement you know believing oneself to be in, in, in you know somehow inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment you know kids who feel so entitled and think the world will revolve around them and we rightly emphasize God's grace and love. Amen. But we wrongly not but wrongly not teach them to fear the Lord when we blatant when they blatantly rebel against him. And so entitlement comes and and we got to go away. Hey, you know this this is a privilege. This is a privilege to be a Christian. You you're you're treating God in such a poor way. You know, uh, you, you you know, Hebrews gets so graphic about this. You know, in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, you keep on sinning. If you know the truth, there's no sacrifice of sin. He it says, you're trampling on the blood of Christ as if it's nothing, something under your foot. is what. That's, what, that's a sign of scorn. And, and God's forgiveness, you take it for granted. And you keep on deliberately sinning and you have no fear. Wow, we need to have a Bible study about this. Because God says it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of change. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes leaders or parents or, or disciples, you know, we, we don't get discipled. So here's Eli. And, 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 and Eli would not restrain his sons. But no one could get Eli to restrain his son. No one could disciple Eli. and Because no one could disciple Eli, no one could disciple Eli's sons. And so it's so important, I, I think, do, do our children see ongoing, genuine repentance in our lives as parents? Do, do they see us having a healthy fear of the Lord? Because sometimes we lose that at the same time. Thirdly, sometimes they, they don't know God, they just know the church. You know, it's like Judges too, in some sense. We, we fail to connect our, God, our, our kids to God. And either our, our kids rebel against their parents Uh, And parent and God, they're all one thing, and and they leave and rebel against God. Another scenario sometimes is kids become religious or moralistic. uh, And uh, uh, where they're not deeply spiritual, Do, do they really see us as disciples? Fourthly, sometimes sacrifice is removed from our Christian life. You know, parents don't, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, you know. And, and uh, when I was a young Christian, you know, we we, as the movement began, and I'm one of those guys who's been around since the movement began, you know. And and, and you know, we were we were so sacrificial and all that. We were we we would change our majors, we would we take lesser jobs, we we would do whatever we had to do to further God's kingdom. We sacrificed for that. We 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 did all kinds of things, and sometimes some of them weren't even. The, Some of them weren't even the best things, but they were done with the right heart. And that's a big deal. You know, with the right heart, we say, well, I'll do whatever whatever God wants me to do for God. And then we have kids. And then, all of a sudden, they're supposed to do the same thing. You know, Hebrews chapter 13 talks about Jesus bore disgrace outside of the city walls, and we also bear his disgrace. And we bore it as young disciples, but we don't want our kids to. We don't want them to feel that disgrace. We want them to just have all the blessings and all that God all has to offer and their, all this stuff, and, and yet not teaching them sacrifice. Sometimes we react fifthly, the, our children fearing the Lord, fearful of some stereotype of fire and brimstone preaching. Maybe you think this is what I'm doing right now. I'm not really. We want them to have a positive view of God rather than that picture we've seen or read in literature of those children who were made weird by religiously dysfunctional parents. You know, we get, it's, in, it's in our head, you know, and we kind of go, oh, I don't, I don't want to be that. So let's, let's always talk about love and grace. It's not going to be great. For the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's, it's, it is respect, but it is a sense of man. How fearful am I of God? How fearful am, am I of that? You know, you know, uh, you know, one, one can't avoid the process. If you read about Job, you know, Job is a long read. But it finally, in the very end of Job, he gets it. And what does he get? That he's nothing. Mm-hmm. God says, let me, let me let you think about me for a moment. You know, and, and all of a sudden, God, Job says, I am a worm. I am dust. He finally gets it. You know, uh, there's a time Isaiah and the spirit fell upon him. And and, and he, he said, take, take, take off this coal and put it on your lips And what does Isaiah say? Woe to me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He gets it. Peter is out fishing with Jesus. Jesus has healed his mother-in-law. And he takes him out there. And he says, Peter, I want to go fishing. Peter says, okay, I'm in your debt. They go out. He says, we fished all night, Jesus. Uh, We don't drop the nets in the middle of the day. But because you say so, I'll do it. He drops the nets and every fish in the vicinity hops in the boat, the boats begin to sink with so many fish. Peter falls on his knees and says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. I didn't believe, and I get it, I get it. You know, know, Paul, who said, who are you, Lord? Then he hears Jesus. I think he understood something about the fear of the Lord at that moment. Like, what's gonna happen? At that moment, you know, a healthy sin study is one that helps us to understand that our sins have gotten us to a very bad, bad place. And if we understand that, the grace of God is so awesome. But you can't skip the process with you or the next generation at any time. Sometimes we see people following the teachings of the church and fearful of what the church thinks but not fearful of God and end up being people-pleasing. And lastly, because they don't see the next generation before them fearing the Lord and living like... They don't see us living as disciples at home. There's a passage in Ezekiel 8, 7. And he says, He brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked down, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig in that wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance... And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around me was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood the 70 of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah son of Shaphan standing among them, each had a censer, each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to him, to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of the Lord are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they said, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. That last phrase, you know, what's going on in the inner house, in that room of pictures, let's call a like screen, a television computer screen what's going on in the dark what's going on in the houses what's really happening what's going on in Israel's day there was something going on behind those walls that wasn't but when they come outside they were all right what's going on in our day the same thing can be going on in our day you know where is the fear of the Lord where is the fear of the Lord where is the fear of the Lord well, last and final point, because I know you guys are hungry for a picnic and a baptism or two. The third one Mary sings about is proud in the thoughts of our hearts. Mary says, I, you know, Lord, you, 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 are, you are against those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts, the text says. In verse 51, proud in inmost thoughts. But, but in other words, proud in most thoughts, but literally proud in the thoughts or intentions of their hearts. the literal translation is their hearts are having proud thoughts but on the outside they don't look that way you know and so you know you you, you sound humble but inwardly you're proud and God's response is to scatter these thoughts and those people so what are some proud thoughts you know one is uh, whenever someone challenges your heart a proud thought is, you don't understand. I'm, I'm really a good guy. You know, I, you know I'm really a good person. You know, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm really a good. I'm really a good, a good gal. How, how dare you think that about me? Well, I, I, I'm just, we're just trying to help. But a proud thought is like, wow, what, what do you mean? I'm really a gooder gal. That's, that there's no scripture that that supports that kind of thought. <laughs> You know, we, we, we are sinners before God. You know, we're saved by God's grace. And, and uh, a lot of our sins, are, especially the sin of self-deceit, is ripe in all of our lives in this room. And we need each other. Paul, Hebrews says, chapter 3, verse 12, sinning with brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other all the more. Know that we need each other to get down to that heart level. But what is our response? Sometimes our response is, well, I'm listening to what you're saying but I'm going to ignore what you're saying. Your advice, sure. Get advice and then do what, do what you want. Amen. you got to do what you got to do. But getting advice, take it seriously. And then own it. Or keep talking until you understand. Thirdly, uh, there are examples about what proud in our hearts look like. And there, let, me, let me give you three that you probably are familiar with. One is in Mark chapter 10. Verse 17, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, gets on his knees, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks down at him, loves him, and says, Well, one, you know, keep keep the commandments. All the commandments I've kept since I was a boy. Wow. Then then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and come follow me. Oh. Oh, there's something going on in the heart we don't know right about trust about you know about what's really going on inside you know he's an awesome guy but but why is he on his knees asking how to enter the kingdom if he thinks everything is going on well so you know he's aware he's aware yeah I've kept the commandments but something's missing I I need to understand that yeah you got to understand your heart there's Nicodemus in John John chapter 3 Older guy, remember the Sanhedrin. Been looked upon by the community as a respected man of God. Uh, held up. He's a legend. Comes to Jesus at night. Says, Jesus, I know you, you're from God. No one can do the things you're doing unless God were with him. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Whoa. Whoa. You mean start all over again? You don't understand my walk with God and how close I am. and And... Uh, and uh, I go back to my mother's womb, what are you talking about? You know, and Nicodemus, you gotta be born of the water and the Spirit, whoa! Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? You do understand this. But you don't own the fact that that, that there's sin there, that there's, you're, you're proud in your heart. And yeah, worldly people can be proud, but boy, can religious people be proud. I mean, I don't, I'm goodness gracious. The, Jesus could cast the most, most, a bit, most horrid demon in creation into the abyss of hell with one word. But he could have 10,000 words against a religious, proud Pharisee and wouldn't put a dent in them. Man, how proud in their hearts are they? How proud in their hearts are they? And then there's Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And yes, it's a great story about the prodigal son, but he has an older brother. <laughs> and what is he like? And he's, he's there with the dad. Dad, I've been with you this whole time. I've been with you. I'm, I'm, I'm your man. This, this son of yours, fooling around with prostitutes and while living, you giving him a party. Come into the party. Come, No. Son. Son, you you got a proud heart. You got a proud heart. In Psalm fifty-one, David writes one of his deepest psalms, following his exposure of what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he knows that God delights truth in the inward being, and he knows Nathan has exposed what was going on in his heart, and when it is exposed, he broke down. He broke down. But how do we? How do we How do we? What do we do at those moments? You know there. There are no real solutions by our own efforts to getting a humble heart. You know, I, I, I can't say, you know, hey guys, I used to have a proud heart inside, but now it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> How many of you believe that? None of you believe that. You know, if it's true of me, it's true of you. It's true of you. But what do we need? You know, uh, that, where, we, we need... We, you know, we, yeah, when I, when I want to do good, evil's right there with me. Where do I go to get a humble heart? Well, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will have rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I and you need to come to Jesus every day. We all need to learn to magnify God and reduce ourselves. Let us have a healthy fear of God because we desperately need His mercy. And we need His mercy because inside we all have proud hearts. So let us go to Him in our weariness and with our burdens to learn from Him who has a humble heart. Jesus will be pierced for our sins. And the text in the Gospels will say, Mary and your soul will be pierced too. As awesome as you are, your soul will be pierced too. We all need to be, need less of us and more of him. So let us as a church at this Christmas season, magnify God in all of our lives and magnify Jesus as our Lord. And when you hear the crow call, say like Elizabeth, oh my gosh, Jesus is in the house. Jesus is with us. He's come to bring good news and salvation because we need it. And he takes the humble of heart and exalts them that the way of the world does not understand as he's done with your lives and my life. And he wants to do in the lives of so many here in Perth. So let's be that as a church. Amen. Right now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so uh, and we'll be passing the trays and, and the the bread and the cup, the bread represents his body. We all uh, love the, this is, Mary's taking song here, but I, I always love Mary, did you know? The song that kind of moves us, did you know that one day your son will do all these things, you know, and of course, die for our sins. And, 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 and Mary's heart is pierced by what happens to Jesus, but pierced for her own life let's ever be so grateful about what God has done through the cross of Jesus. And always remember him, especially at Christmas, not just at Easter. And celebrate that in every way. Let's have a prayer. Thank you, Father, for helping us to come and study your word. Thank you, Father, for uh, Mary's heart, Father. And even Zechariah and Elizabeth's heart, Father. And uh, your great plan, Father, to to save the world. Thank you that we can be part of that. Lord, help us magnify you in every way. We pray this now in your son's name. Amen.